Welcome to the Capital Mosaic Podcast. You're listening to the Story Series. This week, Simon Watson takes us into the third act of the story. Enjoy. So, the story, Act 3. The king chooses Israel. Redemption initiated. A people for the king. So today we're discussing Act 3 of this drama of scripture that we've been working through. But um, I'd just like to kind of give us a little bit of a, um, some context of where we've come from, from the previous two acts. So in Act 1, we were um, introduced to the Creator, Creator God. He created the land, the sea, the sky, and everything in them. And His creation was good. He declared, them, he declared it good. He then created man and woman in His image, and He said it was very good. And humankind in this creation um, has two roles, possibly more and, and things like that, but for the purposes of tonight we're going to look at two roles sort of bestowed upon creation, upon humankind in this creation story. And those roles are uh, relationship, to be related, uh, primarily with God, but also with each other. And the other role God gives to humanity is to rule over creation. Um, there's this sort of sense of delegated authority uh, to humanity from God um, over the rest of creation. God is certainly above creation, not at all part of creation. He sits well above it. Um, humans are indeed part of creation, but there's this, I think the image-bearing thing sort of um, bestows upon us this kind of specialness within that creation, and he's asked us to rule. But rule is kind of a funny word, right, because um, we probably all have pretty negative, potential negative connotations with the word rule. We've all seen it. Um, the dark side of rule, probably. Um, and in this sense, it, it doesn't mean domination or exploitation or anything like that. Uh, those are kind of post-fall um, kinds of pictures of rule, potentially of, of, the, of rule. Um, but rather, think of it, think of the rule role, if you like, more in terms of stewardship, Responsibility, caretaking, maintaining order, uh, tending the garden and enjoying the garden, that kind of thing. So we close Act 1 with this wonderful picture of perfection, uh, harmony, everything as it should in the garden, um, shalom. And then, of course, as every good story does, really, there's a, something goes horribly wrong. There's a conflict. Um, sin enters the world in Act 2. And uh, through humanity, sin enters the world through humanity, and it affects and infects everything. It seems nothing is left untouched by, by the disease of sin. And this is certainly evident, particularly evident in the roles that were set up in Act 1. Um, they, they don't cease to exist. Relationship continues to happen, and a, some sort of sense of rule continues to happen. Um, but they're kind of sullied, I guess. You know, they're open to abuse or... Um, or darkness entering into those roles. Uh, and certainly the relationship between God and humans is broken. Um, God ejects Adam and Eve from the garden, and their previously sort of unlimited access to him and intimacy with him is, is revoked. Um, and from then on, you know, outside of the garden, they must toil and struggle. This is definitely a disaster, but thankfully it's not the end of the story. And I love how Peter pointed out when he kind of brought the Acts 2 discussion to us that 
uh, even though there was this consequence of having to leave the garden and, and God was clearly not happy with how things had gone down, um, they were only ejected, they weren't rejected completely from him. There's, before sending Adam and Eve on their way, he clothes them. And this carries a strong suggestion, um, as Peter let us know, that, um, that they weren't completely disinherited, disinherited and he hadn't given up on them completely. So even when it's really hit the fan really early on, we still see these threads of grace entering in from the very start. So, Act 3. We find our main character, the hero, God, the creator God, with a problem that needs to be fixed. Creation needs to be saved, redeemed, restored back to Shalom. And how, how is he going to fix it? How is he going to make right these, um, the God-given roles of relationship um, and rule, as well as everything else that needs to be fixed as well? And that is through the forming, in Act 3, of Israel. Act 3 is the initiation of God's plan for redemption. It's the first phase. It's just the initiation, the first phase of the plan to eventually make things, make everything right again. And sort of biblically in the narrative, um, it's sort of um, it's quite a big chunk of it. We kind of go from Abraham in Genesis, introduced in Genesis 11, all the way to um, to the end of Deuteronomy, really, the fifth book in the Bible, um, where we see Moses before he dies. Um, blessing the next generation of Israelites uh, as they are about to take possession of the land that would become the land of Israel. And the land part of that equation, of Act 3, Chris will be speaking about, um, I'm sure amongst other things, uh, at at our next session. So I'm going to kind of be focusing on the people part, the formation of the people of Israel in Act 3. So it's a huge chunk of story. Like I mentioned, almost five whole books in the, in the Bible, and they're decent-sized books at that. Um, and there's, of course, many little stories, or many dramatic moments, many characters within all of that. And, of course, um, you could spend a whole series or a whole year on, on this, and so you know, I can't really cover much of that in any great detail this evening. And I'll, I'll definitely encourage you guys to read it, especially Genesis and Exodus. Um, it's, it's a great story, and... Um, and it's a, a, it's a nation-forming story, and it's, it's kind of, um, it's the story that, that Jesus knew and grew up sort of knowing and reciting and celebrating and stuff like that. So it's very important to us still today, and it's just a great story. Today I want to focus, as I said, there's lots of little bits there that we could look at. I want to focus on just two. Um, the call of Abraham and the giving of the law to Moses. So kind of the two bookends of the big the big chunk of narrative there. So, Abraham. Father Abraham. Um, after a short introduction in Genesis 11 with a bit of genealogy and, and things like that, um, we are introduced to Abraham, called Abram at the time. His name was changed to Abraham later on by God. Uh, there's a few characters throughout the Bible who had their names changed by God. Simon was one of them. That's kind of it's always not set well with me. but. Anyway. <laughs> Simon wasn't good enough for Peter. <laughs> what was yeah, that's right. That's what was that, Peter? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so, so we find um, in, in Genesis 11, Abraham's introduced. Um, and then we launch straight into Genesis 12, where we have Abram being addressed by God. So I'm going to read this out to you. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So only three verses there, but a pretty kind of major event really in the narrative thus far. God is 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 sort of putting onto Abraham some or Abram still at this stage, some pretty major promises extending all the way essentially to blessing the whole earth. We've got him um, promised land, promised to be a great nation, um, he's promised to be blessed so that he can be a blessing, and that extends all the way to all of the families of the earth being blessed through Abram. So here in this first sort of promise um, or set of promises that God gives to Abram, we see already like hints, I guess hints of the future restoration of the roles that I discussed and um, that were established in, in uh, Act 1 and then kind of broken in Act 2. God will be in relationship with, with this people that forms and they will model godly rule so that the, all the families of the earth uh, will be blessed through them. It's also important to note, though, that Abraham or Abram was 75 years old when he got these promises, married to Sarah, Sarai, and um, who was also advanced in age. I don't, perhaps not quite as old as, as Abraham, but still well past childbearing age, and they were childless. So Abraham is going to father a nation, but he's 75 and he doesn't have any kids. There's a problem here, right? And he's well past the age, and surely he'd probably given up on it. I'm sure. Um, you know, they they probably, like everyone around them, wanted kids at the time and didn't have them. And they probably, by the time they were 75, had thought, well, okay, you know, we're done. That's our lot in life. And then God sort of drops this on them. So then after a few twists and turns, um, we get to Genesis 15, uh, a little bit further along in the story. And we see um, this kind of strange covenant ceremony happening between God and Abraham. And this is... Um, this involves sacrificed animals um, that are kind of split in two, like cut in half and spread apart. And there's like an aisle made between the two halves of the sacrificed animals. And in between them passes a smoking fire pot and a, a burning torch. It's uh, kind of wacky stuff, to be fair. Um, certainly to our ears, I mean, we, we really don't understand this context um, it's, it's really strange, and actually right now we don't need to understand all the ins and outs of that. I'm sure there's lots of great studies out there that, that delve into that um, and the context around it. But really for our purposes tonight, it's, it's enough to, to sort of say that that was kind of God making it official with Abraham. So he'd made these promises previously. Um, Abraham had kind of got on with it, um, gone to check out the land that he, would be, that he was promised and, and just kind of got on with it. Um, but this is God now making it official and sort of binding the two of them together in this covenant relationship. So Abraham certainly may not have had the access or definitely didn't have the access that Adam and Eve would have enjoyed pre-fall in the garden. But there's certainly a strong commitment here from God to relationship, to establishing relationship with a, with a person, with his creation. And there's more detail in the promises here that, that he's given. I won't get into all of them, but essentially it's him ratifying the original promise to make Abraham's descendants um, a great nation, again, to give them land, to bless them so that they can be a blessing to the whole world. But Abraham's, Abraham's still childless at this point. And then eventually, if we fast forward a little bit uh, through the story, 25 or so years later, so Abraham, uh, after the first promise, Abraham's now 100 years old. Um, 
you know, he's kind of in great or great great grandfather age by now. Um, so eventually, with his wife Sarah, they have their son Isaac, and Isaac is the son of promise. And um, through Isaac, God has sort of shown himself to be faithful to his promise, and uh, the plan is now well and truly underway. So that's Abraham. Let's fast forward a little bit. Um, Isaac, his son, has Esau and Jacob. Let's just say they didn't really get along. They were twins, they didn't really get along. Jacob, even though he was younger, kind of um, kind of hoodwinks the, um, his father and his brother and kind of steals, if you like, um, or through deception, kind of gets the blessing, the inheritance, and the sort of birthright there. And it's through his line that we follow the story through. He then has many children, including Joseph, um, who's one of my favourite characters of the Bible in the, in the scriptures. And, and it's Joseph who's um, responsible for bringing his family, at this stage quite large family, descended from Abraham, um, into Egypt. And then we fast forward again another 400 or so years uh, after Abraham, so a number of generations through now, and we find that the 12 tribes of Israel, they're now, sort of, they're now 12 distinct tribes, uh, tribes and they're settled... Um, and growing in number. They're very numerous in, in Egypt, which, have, which is not the land that they've been promised. So they're still kind of foreigners, but they're very well established in Egypt. And they originally kind of came into Egypt, as I mentioned, through Joseph. They were welcomed in. It was, it was good that they were there. It was fine that they were there. The authorities were cool with it. They weren't, you know, there was no wall or anything. And, um, but now, you know, these few generations later, we find that they are hated by the current pharaoh and they've been turned into slaves. And it's in this context that we meet Moses, who is certainly the, probably the most esteemed character in the, in the Jewish tradition. He's, um, he's a, an Israelite child, a baby, uh, literally plucked out of the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter, by essentially the princess of Egypt, um, and raised in, the pal- raised in the palace. Probably given the best education and quite a cushy life, it was clear he was a, a, um, an Israelite, but was, was very much raised as an Egyptian. And if you've seen the Prince of Egypt or been to a, you know, a Passover ceremony or something like that, you'll probably know a lot of the, the next things that go down. And uh, um, this is really story at its finest. It's got murder. It's got a bush that goes on fire but doesn't burn up um, where God reveals his name to Moses. It's got a rod that turns into a snake. It's got plagues of locusts and frogs and boils and rivers of blood and angels of death. A sea that parts and allows the slaves to go free and then kind of crashes down on, on the, um, the army chasing them. Um, it's, it's thrilling stuff. I mean, it doesn't have any dragons in it, but it's a, it's a pretty awesome story. Um, so we find at the end of this passage, coming now into sort of um, the early uh, chapters of Exodus, the second uh, book of the Bible, we find that the Israelites who had a really bad go of it in Egypt as slaves, are now free. They are no longer slaves. They are free, and it is their God who has set them free. This is a major, dramatic, and amazing story of redemption that's kind of set here in the middle of our big, overarching story of the entire redemption that we're kind of heading towards. And if there was any doubt before this, I think um, the exodus of the Israelites, the, the, the rescuing them out of Egypt by God, shows that God is well and truly in the business of saving and restoring. There's no doubt now. And why save them? Why save them if not to have a relationship with them? So you sort of see where this is going. 
then three months after fleeing Egypt, um, and they're in the wilderness, uh, Moses and the, and the Israelites, quite a few of them, I forget the number, is, I think it's well over a million um, Israelites, arrive at the, the, um, the foot of Mount Sinai in the wilderness. And it's here that they are given the law, um, and another covenant is made between, between them. Um, I'll just read this sort of little passage from Exodus 19 that talks about this. This is uh, Exodus 19 verse, from verse 3. Then Moses went up to, went up to God. The Lord, the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So it's God addressing Moses. So Moses came, summoned the elders to the people, uh, of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. The people all answered as one, Everything that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So my, Moses is kind of the messenger there between the Israelites and, and God, um, essentially making promises to each other. God um, is declaring that he is their God and king, and they are responding, yes, we will be your people. So he's, he's binding himself. Where before he, he bound himself to Abraham, to one man, and of course to his descendants, but at the time to one man um, in relationship, he is now entering into this relationship with, with the people of Israel. And then over the next cha- uh, five chapters or so of Exodus, we see the terms of this covenant. The Ten Commandments are given, uh, and various other laws uh, uh, concerning social and religious life and interactions. And scholars have actually pointed out that the form this covenant takes is, um, is similar to vassal treaties of the era. So you'd have these a vassal treaty is where you'd have this conquering king, a king sort of on a rampage, conquering an area, conquering a groups of peoples, and then will... Um, make a treaty with them to be their king and they will be his people. And there's kind of terms and responsibilities um, on, on both sides of that. But it's not really, it's not even, it's not two, two equals making a plan. It's a king and a people group. Uh, the key different of, difference, of course, is that God here didn't conquer the Israelites, but has saved them. So then much of the rest of the book of Exodus and then into Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy deal with establishing... Uh, the ritual sacrificial system, the priesthood, the tabernacle where God is to dwell, with, uh, it's his dwelling place amongst the people. Um, there are ethics, laws for daily life, feasts and festivals. These are the elements of nationhood that are uh, given directly from God uh, through Moses. So a nation, a kingdom is formed, um, has, has a form with legal and religious structure and with God formally declaring his, himself as their king and the people as his treasured possession. This is the kingdom. This is how it will operate. So we can see that the promises made to Abraham have at this stage in the story been partially fulfilled. There's no land yet. We're, we're coming to that. But they're a nation nonetheless. I think this, kind of, this covenant really galvanizes them and forms them as a nation. 
Um, they're not a great nation yet, um, and they're not yet a blessing. That is still to come. But there is a blueprint in place of how to live. There's a blueprint, blueprint for holiness. Okay, so let me, let me sort of bring this in to land. Remember back to Act 1, I mentioned the roles given to humankind. We're to be relators, we're to be rulers in the best sense of the word. So with God's uh, detailed framework for his new society, broadly called the law, all of that sort of those um, books together form the law. Um, with all of that in place, we see that these t- two key roles of humanity are um, well on the way uh, to being salvaged. It's not, it's not a, f- a full, complete sort of saving of them and, and, a, and a kind of return just yet to the garden as such, but they're well on the way to being salvaged. The priesthood and its sacrificial um, system and system of worship and, and all of that provides a means for God and humanity to be in relationship, to be in perpetual relationship, um, and he dwells with them. So he takes his place with them, and there's, all, there's a whole structure of how that interaction and that relationship is going to take place. And the legislative framework that he, he sort of gives to them includes um, wise use of land, provisions for the less fortunate, um, regular cele- celebrations, even hygiene. Um, and so you can sort of see it has built into it, there's a stewardship, a responsibility, um, a care, an order, all of these elements that form what it is to rule over creation um, and to have a stable society in the best sense of the word. So is Israel then, I think, at its finest, and this was mentioned in, in when God is, is speaking to Israel, was to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. They were sort of called to model true humanness, both in their relationship to God and in their administra- administration of rule. When others looked at, you know, their neighbouring um, countries, looked at Israel. Yeah, oh, I have some water later, mate. Yeah. <laughs> when others uh, looked at Israel, they should see what it was like um, with God in charge and humans being as they were created to be. Can you take this, mate? Take it to my You give it. Uh, they were to be blessed. They were blessed, but not for the sake, not just for the sake of being blessed. You're, you'll recall that when he said to, to Abraham, "You will be blessed." It wasn't just because; it was blessed to be a blessing, and that's that's the part of the that makes up the vocation or the call of Israel. They were to be blessed so that they could be a blessing, and this is a call that sadly they so often fell very short of. But it's a call that would find its ultimate fulfilment, spoiler alert, later in Jesus. But, you know, we've got a little ways to go before we get there. So, so as I conclude, I just want to offer a few sort of quick observations about the, the story so far, the shape of the story. <clears throat> Firstly, I would say that God's plan for redemption, initiated here, just initiated, not completed, through the forming of a people, is kind of unexpected, I reckon. When you, when you sort of look at it like that, if, if I was, let's say I received in the post these first two acts as a book or a screenplay and was tasked to kind of write the third act, solve the conflict that's just happened, I don't think I would do that. <laughs> you know, there's, there's too much at risk or there's too many characters that might screw it up or whatever. You know, it just it seems very unlikely. It seems kind of unexpected and, and a little bit weird. Um, C.S. Lewis is sort of kind of in this vein, says reality is usually something you could not have guessed. 
One of the reasons I believe in Christianity is it's a religion you could not have guessed. Um, and I love that. Which sort of it brings me to my second point. And I think one of the reasons that the story is so unlikely on the one hand, but so believable on the other hand, is that uh, is the characters, is the people involved. I mean, we haven't really been able to spend any time getting into their lives. And again, I would, cur- and I would encourage you to go back and read of um, these characters in the story. Um, but these are not your classic sort of shiny-toothed, square-jawed, all-American heroes. You know, there's no Superman in here. These are characters that are very earthy um, and very obviously fallible. They have their issues. Abraham, certainly a hero of the faith and, and kind of the great father Abraham, great man of faith, but he still got more than a few things wrong and he, he still tried to force the story forward by having a child with his, um, his wife's servants. You know, he kind of tried to jump the gun there and pre- preempt God's promises. We have Joseph who himself was a, was a pretty upstanding character, but was from a, a family so dysfunctional um, that his own brothers sold him into slavery and told their father that he was killed and, um, because they were jealous. Um, we have Moses, who, as I mentioned, is probably the top of the heap as far as the characters in the Jewish tradition. He is the kind of big hero of the Jewish tradition, as the one who kind of um, got them out of Egypt and, 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 and brought the law to them. But he was a murderer. The, you know, like the start of his career, if you like, the start of his story, um, his adult story, is him sees him killing a slave master. So you know, uh, and then fleeing. So God uses broken people, very clearly broken people, and dysfunctional families to progress his story forward. And I think um, there's some hope for us in that. And the final observation, which kind of ties the, the others together is that we, we see, we sort of sense and we see that God is so committed to his creation. He's so committed to it. He could have, God can do anything, right? God is all powerful. He created everything um, with words. He certainly could have clicked his fingers and just thrown it all out and started again. You know, like screwed up the page and gone, yeah, no, that didn't really go as planned. Let's start again. Um, or left us all to our own devices. You know, he, he could have solved this another another way, or not solved it and just kind of got on with it. Um, but he doesn't. He, I think, his his commitment to to continue on with his creation is kind of affirmation that creation is still good. Yes, it definitely needs fixing. It is definitely broken, but it is still good. And it's not on a um, trajectory of destruction, it's on a trajectory of, of restoration. And he chooses to partner with people to achieve his pre- uh, redemptive purposes. He chooses collaboration with creation to fix creation. Uh, you know, sort of which again reaches the ultimate where he essentially, um, through Jesus, enters into cre- creation, kind of becomes one of us. So. That's kind of where we're leaving the story tonight. Um, and as the story has progressed, I think we are seeing a picture of, um, a, of a tender, loving, patient, and intimate God taking shape. And uh, there's still plenty more to go. So stay tuned. Thank you. Thank you.